We're looking at Second Corinthians chapter eight, and we're looking. We're going to read eight through fifteen. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever whoever gathered little had no lack. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word towards us. In many ways, it's difficult to process um, what our lives, the sacrifice, look like. It's hard for us. We're reluctant. We pray that your spirit would be with us. I pray that your spirit would be upon me as I preach, and I pray that your spirit would be upon your people as they listen and ponder your truth, that we may grow in the knowledge of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who gives us all things so that we may freely give and sacrifice. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, I'm sure most all of us here have heard about the great Alaskan dog sled race. It takes place every March called the Iditarod, where, where men and women practice for and train for months and months, and their dogs are out mushing around all so they could go over a thousand kilometers through the snow to win a, to win a prize. But do you know where this race got its start? Do you, do you know um, what caused this race to, to come into being? There was, uh, it started out as a response to a dire circumstance in Nome, Alaska. In 1925, the people of Nome, Alaska were on the verge of a diphtheria epidemic. One person got sick and died the next day, and then another, and then another. It was in the middle of winter. The port was all iced in. There was no way to fly in. The only way to get the important medicine was through dog sleds. And that's what took place from uh, Tenena uh, to Nome. Nenana to Nome was 1,085 kilometers or 674 miles. Now, it wasn't just one dog sled team and one musher who made it there. It's kind of like the Pony Express. They they started off and each one would go 20 to 30 miles and then they would hand off the medicine to the next. All the while, did I forget to mention, there was a blizzard going on. The man who finished the final leg, his name is Gunnar Kassen. And 
he wasn't supposed to run the final leg. He was just supposed to do the second to the last leg. But when he arrived at the final cabin at two in the morning, the man who was supposed to take over was fast asleep. So he pressed on in the blizzard another 21 miles, arriving at 530 in the morning with the medicine that saved the lives of the people of Nome. It was a tremendous sacrifice, not just his, but for all of the, the men who risked their lives in order to bring this life-saving medicine to this town. It was quite a feat. And yet, not all the sacrifice seemed to be of the noblest variety. The man, uh, the musher, Ed Roan, who was asleep, he accused Gunner of doing it all for his own glory, <laughs> finishing the final legs so the newspapers would all write about him. Now, I don't know Gunner's motives. We don't really know. But I know my own heart. And maybe you know your own heart, too. And when there's worthwhile causes to sacrifice for, if there's something good in it for us, if we can get a little bit of glory, don't we all just kind of enter into it a little more uh, excitedly? Often our motives are, are mixed. In the end, you know who got the glory? It was the dog. Balto, the lead dog on the mushing team. There was a time in the, in, as, he was, as they were mushing through the snow, that Gunner couldn't even see his hand in front of his face, let alone the trail. But Balto knew the trail. And Balto, in six feet of snow, mushed all the way to Nome because he knew how to get there. Balto was the one who became famous for the sacrifice. There's no statue of Gunner in New York's uh, 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 Central Park. But there's a statue of Balto, and it's been rubbed shiny from all the people who've pet it. If you're interested where it is, it's on East Drive, just north of the 65th Street Traverse. There's a statue of Balto. Now, I don't even know if Balto knows what sacrifice is. I don't think he even knew that he was going there to bring medicine to the people of Nome. I think what drove him was the, the joy of being out with his master running through the snow with other dogs and hearing his master saying, good job, boy, keep it up. Find a way you can do it. Today, we look at the gospel approach to sacrificial giving, giving that flows out of transformation of the gospel in our hearts. And when this takes place, our giving is sacrificial in nature. Now, a healthy, a good definition of sacrifice is this. Sacrifice is giving up something good for a greater good. Giving up of something good for a greater good. Now, sacrifice is generally a good thing. But even good things can be perverted. If you sacrifice your family so that your career can blossom, that is not commendable. We've all seen sacrifice where people have done things really not for the benefit of others, but for their own self. We're all familiar with that sacrifice. The gospel calls us to a different sacrifice, an other-focused sacrifice, a kingdom-focused sacrifice. A sacrifice that in the end kind of produces a joy and a delight, kind of like Balto, where we're sacrificing and yet joyful, thankful, just to hear the Lord say, good job, good work, keep it up. In verse 9 of our passage, Paul says something to the Corinthians that he just as well could have said to you and me. He said, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know. 
It's a rhetorical technique. He's kind of he's saying, but you know the grace of the Lord, don't you? Let's focus on that. See, when you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, um, your life is no longer the same. Instead of self-focused, self-directed living, you are being transformed into someone who's more and more like Christ in all areas, including our giving. And we become other focused and Christ focused. Remember when Jesus challenged the rich, young ruler? I also believe he was handsome, probably, right? The rich, young, handsome ruler. Jesus challenged him. And he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the guy goes rattling off all these things he did. And so Jesus knew what was keeping him from following him. And so he challenged him. He said, okay, sell all you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. The rich, young ruler departed in great sadness. Perhaps thinking, if I sell all and give all to the poor, I myself will become poor. My, my status gone. My security gone. At least maybe I'll still have his good looks, right? Jesus' point, though, is, but you would have me. He would know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls us on and says, attaboy, keep it up. Keep up the good work. The one who's always at our side. The one who's always watching over us and caring for us. To be a sacrificial, generous giver, you've got to know that. You've got to experience that. You've got to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, um, gives us a challenge with regards to our giving in verse 8. He says, our giving reveals if our love is genuine. Verse 8. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is generous. Paul's not commanding them to give. He's not lording it over these people. He points them to the sacrificial giving of the churches in Macedonia, just to their north, in this great campaign of raising money for the, for the Christians in Jerusalem that were suffering horrendously. Their giving demonstrated what? That they knew the grace of their Lord Jesus Christ. They genuinely knew the love of Christ and they demonstrated that towards others. We know that because they gave sacrificially. My friends, when we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we become sacrificial givers. That's what we're looking at here in our text this morning. We're going to see um, this under three headings. We're going to see the portrait, the perseverance, and the plan. The portrait, the perseverance, and the plan. First, the, the portrait. You know, last week we looked at verses 1 through 7. If you weren't here, you can listen online or you can, just, you can read the text in, in your pew Bible or you can read it when you get home. And he, Paul pointed the Corinthians to their neighbors to the north in Macedonia and he showed them basically a portrait of generosity uh, and sacrifice. Now, Paul points them to the portrait of sacrifice. Not a portrait, but the portrait of sacrifice. So there's no other sacrifice that is greater than the sacrifice of the Son of God. Now, it's interesting. Paul uses financial terms to describe that. We've got some bankers here. So you're like, all right, I'm going to listen. I'm going to perk up. All right. Look at verse 9. That though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that by you, uh, so, that, that, so, that, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. First, the emphasis here in the Greek is on the you. It's placed at the front purposely by Paul in the clause. He could have written, you know, that um, by his poverty, uh, you, know, he, uh, you know, he became poor for you. But no, his emphasis is for your sake. 
for you he became poor, that you, you could be rich. Another thing is, you know, we hear this and it sounds very, very financial, you know, not very theological. But it is theological. Um, our, our giving isn't purely financial in nature. It is spiritual. Your giving says a lot about how you understand the grace of God and how well you understand the gospel. And Paul is describing, check this out, one of the most amazing truths in Scripture in financial terms. He's describing what? The incarnation. God becoming man, the eternal son of God, and in uh, in all his glory takes on human flesh to live and to die for us. Paul uses financial language. We sang that earlier, didn't we? Man of sorrows. Sent of heaven, God's own son, to purchase and redeem, to reconcile the very ones who nailed him to that tree. Now my debt is paid. It is paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus spilled. Paul uses financial terms to show us the riches of God's grace and mercy towards us in Jesus Christ. That for your sake, Jesus became poor so that in him you may become rich. Now, please hear this properly. He's not talking about financial riches. It wasn't like Jesus is up in heaven uh, sitting on a pot of gold going, all right, I'm going to give this all up and go down to earth so that all my people can be sitting on pots of gold. Right. That's not what he's talking about. Jesus is rich in many ways, but ultimately We don't need financial riches from Jesus. We need the riches of his grace and mercy towards us. You know, if you're in Nome, Alaska in 1925, when this this diphtheria outbreak um, broke out, would you get excited if a dog sled came in through the blizzard with a safe full of cash? No. What do you need? You need medicine. When when you're facing death, you need a lifesaver. And the picture that we see here is that who that is who Christ is for us. So Paul is taking us to a greater and more eternal degree of richness. The richness of Christ is his eternal uh, divine relationship with his heavenly father. Uh, The poverty that he experiences is um, that he was separated from his heavenly fathers um, so that he could bear our sins. On the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He entered into that poverty so that we need not ever hear that. He entered into that poverty so that we can be brought into the brace of the father. So Paul points us to the portrait of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Why? When we meditate upon the sacrifice of Christ, when we um, see Christ becoming poor for our sake, it motivates us to, to sacrifice in our giving, not just financially, but in all sorts of ways. And, you know, Christians in America, we need to, unfortunately, we need to ponder, we need to meditate upon Christ more. We, we're, we're, when, we, when we see the, the estate of Christians in America and, and, and how we are, are, quote, sacrificing in our giving, we need, to, we need to spend more time focusing upon the portrait of Christ. You know, depending upon which report you look at, Christians in America give anywhere from two and a half to three percent of their of their income each year, which is only like a half a percent greater than the general public. Two and a half percent isn't much of a sacrifice. 
Some of you may say, well, what are you talking about? That sounds like a big sacrifice. Well, if that's how you think, let me illustrate it this way. What if I were to be out for my birthday dinner with my wife, Leslie, and we're sitting down and, and after the meal, out comes the dessert cart. And on there is a wonderful piece of flourless chocolate cake. And I, I and it's, it's mine. Of course, Leslie doesn't get anything, right? But then the server does what? Brings two forks. And what if I were to sit there and carve out two and a half percent? Of my chocolate cake. That would require a lot of manual dexterity. Probably even like a scalpel or something. And, and what do you think that would look like to the people sitting at the table next to me? I'm putting that little bit of chocolate cake on the fork. And I lavishly drop it into her mouth. What do you think they would think? What a jerk. <laughs> Does he really love her? Does he really care about her? Or is he just really all about himself? I'm not here to motivate us by calling people jerks for not giving. That doesn't work. Paul doesn't use that approach. You know, the old, uh, the old stick approach towards getting people to do anything doesn't last very long. Paul knows that our motivation for doing anything, anything that is God-honoring, must come from the reality that, that we understand and know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The more and more we know the grace and the love of our Lord Jesus Christ and focus on the portrait of his sacrifice to us, the more generous and sacrificial we will be towards others. I like how the ESV Gospel Transformation Bible describes this. Here's what it says in its notes. It says, though Paul might legitimately appeal to his apostolic authority, you better do this, I'm an apostle, or to the obligation to give a tithe. He knows that the Corinthians need a deeper motivation. And so he appeals to the gospel. Jesus gave not just a tenth of himself, but all of his riches. He embraced poverty so that we might become rich. His radical act of total self-giving is the only thing that can consistently move us to give beyond the minimum. In essence, If we don't desire to respond to God's grace with sacrificial giving, then we have not yet fully understood the nature of the gospel. The answer to our motivation problem is not adherence to a new command, but a more thoroughgoing knowledge and experience of the extravagant self-giving of Christ. The answer to our selfishness is not a minister telling you to give more. The answer to our holding on to what we have is we need to look more at Christ, who held on to nothing and gave it all. We need to soak in this portrait of sacrifice, not for the perseverance. In 2002, Andrew and Deborah Veal set off on a rowboat race across the Atlantic. They left uh, Tenerife, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, in the Canary Islands, uh, to sail all the way across to Barbados in a plywood boat that they built themselves from a kit they had ordered. Two set off on the journey. Only one arrived. Oh, no, no, he didn't die. (laughs) He got tired. A third of the way through, he grew weary and anxious, and so the husband was was taken off the boat and flown back to the United Kingdom. The papers were all abuzz. 
and in the UK. They were now following this woman who was all by herself, rowing the rest of the way across the, the Atlantic, persevering, and 111 days later, landing in Barbados. By the way, her last name is no longer Veal. You know, we admire someone like Deborah for her perseverance. We can say, I could never do that. Uh, it's not within me. I, I'm not up for the sacrifice. We're more like the husband. We think like, well, that sounds like a great idea at first. And then we, you know, we jump in and realize we just don't have what it takes. You know, uh, the blisters start building up on, on our hands and the, the daily pressure kicks in and, and we quit. We fail to persevere in our sacrifice. And we can do that with our giving, too. That's what Paul is getting at. He's concerned with this church in Corinth. In verse 10, we see that they had been they had been fundraising for this campaign for over a year. They've been bringing a gift over and above their regular giving, knowing that it was uh, Paul's going to come and get it and then take it to Jerusalem to help those people. And in verse 11, Paul encourages them to finish doing it well. Uh, see, sacrificial giving de- uh, is dependent upon perseverance. It's one thing to begin with the sacrifice, but we need to to finish the sacrifice as well. And Paul says that they began with really good motives and intentions. From his judgment, he says, um, he believes they started well. They desired to do well. They began by collecting the special offering each week, and, and it wasn't under compulsion. But in verse 11, he says, so now finish doing it well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. You know, it's not all that hard to sacrifice on the short term. Maybe you have a friend or you had a friend in the past who was going on a short term mission trip overseas and needed like twelve hundred dollars. And so you sacrificed, a, you know, a month or two of, of eating out and, and then you wrote a check for a hundred bucks. Uh, that's a sacrifice, but it didn't require a whole lot of persevering. The type of persevering that, that a, a building campaign or such, or, or just your regular, regular uh, ties and offerings to a church, that type of sacrifice requires an ongoing perseverance in our lives. Where does that come from? You know, we saw that in, in Bob's testimony this, this morning. There's, you know, it was, uh, he was excited about the building campaign. He and Debbie, they, they, pledged an amount that, that I don't know what it is, but I'm sure it was generous and sacrificial. And, and then there's a point when the bills start coming in, things you weren't expecting. And, and um, you can start to scratch your head and wonder, well, you know, you know, I'm a third of the way across the Atlantic. Maybe there's some way to be rescued, right? And, um, but what we see, though, is, is there is a perseverance that God provides for his people. It, it comes from above. It comes from one knowing that you've heard from the Lord. Remember last week we, we talked about what, what was it that allowed the Corinthians to be generous? Paul said, first, they gave themselves to the Lord so that they would know the will of God. And then they gave towards the campaign. When you've met with the Lord, and we're going to do this still in the next few weeks, we're, as we're meeting with God and asking him to show us what a generous sacrificial gift to the campaign looks like, you spend time doing that, you're going, to, you're going to emerge from that confident that you've heard from him. As I said last week, we should expect the unexpected. It might be more than you thought. But um, when you've met with him, you, you know that you've heard from him, and that allows you to persevere when you're in the midst of, of, of the ongoing monthly meeting of an obligation. But let me challenge you with this. If 
if you're not committed to a sacrificial gift or you're, or you're quick to give up when perseverance is called for, um, you're not going to be stretched in your faith. In fact, in, in many ways, you perhaps could miss out on Christ's presence in your life as he would like to be with you in the midst of your trial and your suffering and your obligations and, and to meet with you and to show you all the more the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul knows this personally. In his letter to the Philippians, in chapter 3, verse 8, he says, Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. That's the definition of sacrifice, giving up something good for a greater good. Paul says he gave it up all for the, the joy and the delight of knowing Christ. Now, when Paul talks about knowing Christ, it's not just a theological or intellectual knowledge. This is relational knowing. You know, if I invite you uh, over to my house to do some yard work, we're going to know each other from doing the work together, right? But if you say no, uh, you're going to miss out on hanging out and getting to know each other. I know that's kind of a bad illustration, but, but that's, the, that's what we see. Paul is like, Paul has, Paul has said, I want to know Christ. And what we see here, this knowledge is a relational knowledge. And and just a few verses later, he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Christians, you want to know Christ? Don't be so quick to get out of suffering situations in your life. It's in them that you'll find him. Our, Our savior is a suffering savior. He knows what suffering is about. He meets you in the midst of it. He's a sacrificing Savior. He knows what it's like to persevere to the end. Jesus went all the way to the cross. He didn't stop short. Even when all of his disciples abandoned him, he went to the cross. And the whole time thinking about others. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now for the plan. You know, God gives us, has a plan to reconcile people back to him. And it involves Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. But God's plan doesn't just stop with you and him. God's plan is that people would be reconciled to each other. That there would be relationships that are now strengthened and secured through that. And what we need to see is is that, therefore, God's plan isn't that our excess uh, would be used for for ourselves, but rather for the needs of of others. That's what we see in this passage towards the end. You know, one of the primary reasons why we don't give generously or sacrificially is we suffer from selfishness. When we get a little bit of extra, you get that bonus. It's like it's already spent on what you want. Right? I know how that is. Right. You know, um, we get an inheritance. And we're like, we're already thinking, where can I spend it? I got all these ideas, these dreams, you know, as opposed to thinking, how would God want me to, to use this? You know, my daughter, Ella, it was uh, Halloween on Friday night. My daughter, Ella, came to me uh, Friday afternoon with this ingenious plan that she had hatched up. And here's what she said. She says uh, it was a plan basically in order to trick people out of their Halloween treats. <laughs> Her plan was to bring along this cute little dog when she went trick-or-treating. And she would bring it up to the door and distract the, the people who were handing out candy. As they were, as they were petting the dog, uh, she and her friend would reach into the basket and grab a, a handful of candy and stick it in their pockets. 
And when I questioned her on her plan, she assured me that it was her friend who came up with it. (laughs) We laugh, but it's true of us. Whenever we have a chance to grab a little bit extra for ourselves, we usually do. When life gives us a little bit more, we take it for ourselves. Let me ask you, just think about the things in your life that have come your way. The things maybe recently, something landed in your lap, something wasn't expected. Who was it already earmarked for? Was it you or, or the kingdom purposes? I don't say this to guilt you. It's just, just a, a important thing to be thinking through because Paul is saying that where people know the Lord Jesus Christ and the grace that he gives us, we come to realize that the excesses that God gives us are means by which we bless other people with the same grace and mercy that the Lord has shown us. So God's plan for sacrificial giving is seen in the final verses of our passage. Verse 12. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be, may be fairness. Then he quotes the Old Testament. Moses says, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. God is challenging this church in Corinth for them to see that their abundance at the present time is really God's means for blessing other people who are in need. That they have a supply they are to give out of. It's proportional. They, according to what a person has. We talked about this last week, but we're not taking the bill from this building campaign and handing it out equally like they do at the country club. This is shared sacrifice. This is proportional giving. Those who had more gave more. Those who had less gave less. This is fair. You know, this twice Paul says this is fair. God is a fair God. God is more than fair. God is concerned that the, that the people on this earth would be treated with generosity and fairness and that people wouldn't hoard things for themselves, but rather see them as an opportunity to bless another person. You know, throughout this campaign, we're, 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 we're not asking for equal gifts, but shared sacrifice. What does it look like for you and for your family to share in this sacrifice? Don't worry about what the person's doing next to you. Oh, they have a lot more money. I'm counting on them. No, share in the sacrifice, right? That's what we see here. You know, some of you are in such financial situation that you can't. That's okay. You know, you need to know that you need the body of Christ, us here to to understand your needs so we can help come alongside you. You need the generosity of your brothers and sisters here at Grace to provide for your needs. It's my hope that we would be that kind of church. that When we have an excess, we'd be looking out for each other in ways in which we can serve and help them each other. And guess what? Sometimes you might be in need (laughs) and their abundance can meet your supply. Do you see what he's getting at here? This is not a normal way of living. This is countercultural. This is not the way in which the world we live in teaches us to operate. But this is how the grace of God shows us how we're to live our lives. The excess that you have, that I have, is not for us. It's for us to look at and say, how may I bless God in this kingdom through it? That's why Paul says we're test. This is a test. Our generosity is a test. Do you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? If you're stingy, there's a likelihood maybe you don't. 
Because our Savior is a God who gave it all, who held nothing back. Now, perhaps a question in your mind is, what does Paul mean by abundance? (laughs) Perhaps it would be best to consider what abundance was like back then. I think we'd find we're all abundant. You know, back then, what did abundance look like? It looked like your crop this year was a little bit better than the people 100 miles away. Abundance meant that as you lived in your small little house and you, and you didn't live in excess, you had a little bit left over so you could help somebody else. Remember the Macedonians? They were in extreme poverty. And yet because of the grace of God flowed through them, it overflowed in a generous gift towards others. Their living circumstances were modest. So before you're quick to put yourself into the category, uh, I am not so abundant in my supply, be careful <laughs> that, you, that, you, that you don't see the real reality that we have here is wealthy Christians in America. You know, I think about my own grandparents. If you're in one of our small groups we had, we looked at just how one or two generations ago, how it was so much different. People didn't buy clothes on credit cards and then throw them away after two years or give them away to goodwill and, and then act like you'd done something charitable. You know, um, it, my, my grandma had like three dresses or four dresses. She looked good in them. I love my grandma. She, she wore the same three or four dresses, not all at the same time. But, you know, and, uh, and, and they lived in a small home, 1,400 square feet. She was so happy. They only had one breadwinner in the house, you know, and they, their needs were met. Um, Nowadays, the average size home in America is over 2,400 square feet, and it's getting bigger every year. We, we bought into this, this falsehood of consumerism that tells us that in order for, for my life, my life is all about me being happy. And my happiness is predicated upon the fun things I have, the good things I have, the nice trips I get to take, uh, the big plasma screen TV, how many iPods, iPads. I don't want to. Who here still has a, an iPhone one? You know, I mean, we're always upgrading. I mean, and that's a, someone raised their hand back there. All right. He's a kid. All right. Um, so, I mean, you know, that's that's, uh, you know, we're always on the lookout for some later, greater thing. What if the people of God were actually to live below their means? Maybe sold the big house, moved into a smaller one. You know the headaches you have with a big house? A smaller home, something, something that meets your needs. What if we were to, instead of going on three or four vacations a year, be like our grandparents and just maybe go on one big life trip? For some of you, that's like, there's no way. That's impossible. We have an abundance in our lives, Okay. And, and our abundance is not for us to, to lavishly spend on ourselves. God gives us an abundance so that we can bring blessing to other people. The problem is our abundance is swallowed up on ourselves. We don't have anything left at the end of the month. Paul directs our thoughts back to the Exodus. He said, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Paul points back to the time when he had just rescued his people. They had experienced his grace coming out of Egypt, and they're walking through the desert, and they're hungry. And every day God provided manna, bread from heaven. It would land on the ground kind of like dew, 
it was kind of crispy, you know, like, I don't know, like a little wafer, kind of like coriander taste, I guess. I don't know. I suppose it was good tasting unless you had to eat it for like months at a time. But um, God provided for their material needs with food. And what we saw that was that there were some able gatherers and some less than able gatherers. But everybody had enough. No one had too much. No one had too little. It was distributed equally. You can imagine you wake up in the morning and there's the old lady's barely moving around and she's having a hard time to pick up the manna and some little kid comes rushing in and grabs it, you know. Uh, but they would, they would all gather it. At the end of the day, they, they shared it. But they had to learn to share it. Remember what happened? At first, the first go around, those who could gather more, they hoarded it. Remember what happened to it when they hoarded it? Became rancid, full of maggots, useless the next day. Well, I guess I better be generous now because it's not going to last more than a day. God made sure that his people, were, were all, their needs were always being met daily with the food that he fed them. The able gatherers didn't have any more than those who were less able gatherers. If you were in one of the small groups this past week, you, we, Tim Keller um, study we, we went through talks about this. Keller, Keller makes a few comments. He says, the money we have is as much a gift of God as the manna was a gift to the Israelites in the desert. Though some were more able gatherers, some are better at making um, more money than others. The money you make is a gift from God. The second thing he makes, the money we make must be shared to build up community beyond what you personally need. Just as God clearly expected material provision beyond one's personal needs to be shared with others rather than kept for oneself, so wealthier believers must share with poorer ones, not only within the congregation, but across congregations and borders. And to extend the metaphor, the third thing, money that is hoarded for oneself rots the soul. Hence the reason why Jesus often spoke of money and where our treasure is. God's plan is that we would live modestly within modest means, longing to share whatever excesses we have in blessing to others in our community and throughout the world. What if Christians really live this out? What if this is really who we were? What if we live below our means, content to live with less so that we could benefit others? In our study this past week, once again, we... we, uh, uncovered some truth that came out in the book, The Midas Trap. The truth is this. They found out that if all Christians would tie, that is, give 10% to kingdom work, not only would all Christian churches and ministries be fully supported, but check this out, there would be enough money, if distributed to all the poor of the world, to lift them all above the poverty line. I've seen a number of these studies, and it's true. If we would just be 10% generous... You, the whole world would what? Have food? Yes. And more than that, the whole world would come to know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's plan is that our extra is not for us, it's for others. Practically speaking, how do we get there? By what Paul says, look at the portrait of Christ. That's where we go. Don't go to your bank account first. Don't, you know, go, uh, go to the portrait of Christ. See his sacrifice towards you. Come to know more and more the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Practically speaking, it might mean you need to make some changes in, in the next few years. It could take a while for you to get yourself into a position to where you're able to have excess. You know, we've... 
It might take years to undo the work of years of poor stewardship in your life. It might take you a couple years to get out of that expensive car lease, both of them. <laughs> it might take you a few years to pay off credit card and school debt. We have a number of people in our church who've done that. They've paid off their credit cards. They've gotten out of debt. You know how freeing that is? Frees them up to really be generous and give. Maybe you feel like you need some help in that area. Come to me. I'd be glad to sit down with you as best I can and help walk you through what it looks like for you in your own life financially. I've got resources that I can share with you that will help you get a handle um, on your on your stewardship. But all of us need to soak this in. God's plan is that our extra is not for us, but for others. And we do it so that others may know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we wrap up, I want to make sure that we understand what we're shooting for. People hear a message on sacrificial giving and you think, you know what, that pastor, those pastors are always about money. They always want my money. You know, I remember once I was in, in a church in St. Louis and with this girl who brought her brother and her parents. And it just so happened it was teaching on tithing. It's the first time I've been in church in years, right? He shows up, he sits there. I was soaking it in. I'm like, oh, my heart, I'm being convicted about areas of my life. And I was experiencing God's grace sitting in the pew right next to the guy. This guy, he walks out going, see, these churches, all they want is money. <laughs> I was like, you just don't get it, right? But when you've experienced the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, you, you allow yourself to be challenged with teachings on things like money. Money, money has a lot to do with where our hearts are. The more transformed our hearts are by the generous sacrificial giving of Jesus Christ, the the more generous and sacrificial we are in our giving. It makes you more cheerful and sacrificial, not just financially, but relationally as well. As you as you sacrifice your own comfort so you can go out and bring comfort to a neighbor or emotionally as you share in the grief and in the sorrow of other people so that you can bring the grace of God to a grieving and hurting world, that takes sacrifice. May we be sacrificial givers. May God's grace have its way with us. May we not be stubborn and selfish. May we plead with God that he would show us in our own lives what it looks like to be faithful stewards of all that he gives us, that we would really live sacrificially for his glory. Um, trusting him in all that we do and not for our own glory, but for the glory of the one who, though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor so that by his poverty we might become rich. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words in scripture. They're heavy in some sense, but they're also liberating to know that you care for your people so well that you are a God of fairness and that you give abundantly, and that you're quick to forgive us when we foolishly hoard, and, and you're good to correct us and to encourage us to press on and to persevere. We pray for your Holy Spirit's work in our lives as we come to the Lord's table, and as we leave here and we make plans for this building campaign. We pray your blessing upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.